This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros. Cammy here. This is a re-release because I am in Vancouver filming something. Check out this episode with Precious Brady Davis. And um, hey, you want to come see me live in Vancouver? I'll be there October 22nd. Or do you want to see me October 15th in LA? Go to CameronEsposito.com for tickets. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still delirious today let's do this we let's do, do this happy friday oh my god happy friday it you is friday it. it's fully friday congratulations to us right exactly absolutely i want to um ask you to introduce yourself i always have guests introduce themselves my name is precious Brady davis i am a trans woman of color i'm a wife a mother a native nebraskan scorpio author, communications professional, and I am trying to call myself as a recently a cook. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, is that like a pandemic? Yeah, but I have always, but I've always collected cookbooks, you know, of course, you know, Chrissy Teigen, Aisha Curry, but I just love cooking. Um, but yeah, the pandemic is obviously giving me time to do that. What? food did you grow up eating in Nebraska? Oh my gosh. Stuffed cabbage, anything that has some kind of sausage in it. Uh (laughs) Lots of farm foods, things with corn in it, grains, home cooking. Yeah. That, okay. That makes sense. I think, you know, that, that, that rings true as somebody, I'm trying to think if I've been to Nebraska. Have I, like, I feel like I've driven through between gigs or something like that. But yeah, my outsider's vibe is like, that's a rural place. I mean, people think that, I mean, most yeah, of tell Nebraska, me more. like if you go west of Omaha, where I'm from, which is a thriving metropolitan area with public transportation as, you know, as, you know, as well as, you know, strip malls and, you know, churches and bars but yeah, going west of Omaha, you know, you will see that it is quite rural. You know, they call it the Great Plains. You know, you go west and you find Chimney Rock. But yeah, Omaha is a, a metropolitan city. It's very diverse. Yeah. So that's again, you know, in terms of, I just think sometimes we don't, we don't know this about the country that we live in because there are, it's like these projected images that, that I think are absorbed. And, and for instance, I would have said, that Omaha was very white, like they're just based on nothing, like just based on osmosis and uh, growing up in, you know, Chicago. And anyway, but that, that you're saying that's not true. Yeah, but even Lincoln, Nebraska, you know, where the University of Nebraska Lincoln is, I went to school there. They have some of the highest per capita of LGBTQ population in the country, you know, and I think that is a common stereotype, you know, that there aren't queer people, there aren't, you know, diverse people in rural places of the country. You know, UNL is a place that is thriving, you know, when it comes to queer academics, queer organizing. And yeah, I think that's important to talk about. It really, I I, I think it is important too, because especially, I mean, I think back on like, the Trump years and the number of articles that were written so many, especially at the beginning, because then as his antics continue, as he was like actually making policy, we started, you know, that was more what was focused on. But in terms of when he was first elected, it really was that that coverage of like the middle versus the coasts and the coasts are elite and the middle is like all straight, all cis, all white. And you know, I've traveled enough to know because of my job that that is not true. But I, I don't think we talk about that. Um, you know, I mean, that is, and that's a huge problem because when we're talking about where people actually live and who our neighbors actually are, it's I think it's different than what this like 
narrative um, wants us to believe about how we relate to each other. Even the first congressional district of Nebraska this year, you know, Nebraska has two congressional districts and Omaha actually went blue and people were coming with all sorts of scenarios. You know, when it came to the Electoral College, they thought that it was going to come down to this one (laughs) Nebraska electoral vote. Uh, And and so progress, I think it's important to uplift progress in in those places. Yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. And also to acknowledge that that folks live there. You know, that's a reassure. Yes. You, you know, to yes. say to say that people aren't there when I've seen this with my own eyes, you know, I, I also think that it um it's not just for the folks who don't have this information. It's actually it's for more for the folks who, you know, are there. Um or, you know and are living in places like like Omaha. Yeah, um, and so I, thank- I can yeah, I completely agree. And and some, you know, people can choose to stay there and are effective and and need to be there. You know, everyone like me can't leave. You know, I left just because I couldn't, you know, because like of my mental health and because, you know, of the environment as a trans and queer person of color, I felt it wasn't safe. But there are people there who are doing powerful work on the front lines. So I want to talk about the work that you're doing right now. Can we talk a little bit about your job? Yeah, I... I love the, the work that I do at Sierra Club. So I work at Sierra Club, which is an environmental nonprofit. We advocate for clean air, clean energy, and clean water. And I specifically started doing that, you know, after Donald Trump was elected, because I, I was working in higher education at the time. And I felt like I wanted to have a direct impact on fighting against like the Trump administration, just because they were right in the pocket, you know, of fossil fuels. Uh, and in terms of corporate polluters. And I get a a great chance to see the impact on people's lives, whether, you know, we're working, you know, in a community in Minnesota that is, you know, taking power from a solar array that is saving them cost energy, that is saving, you know, them cost on uh, their energy, or whether it is a state like Nebraska that I get to fight for clean energy alternatives, even though I don't live there. Yeah, I mean, maybe I will ask the dumb question of, I certainly have name recognition for the Sierra Club, but could you talk to me a little bit more about what the work is that the Sierra Club does, the specific sort of range of things? Yeah, the Sierra Club does lots of different vast kind of work. So the the work that I do specifically is on a campaign called Beyond Coal. So working to transform a dirty fossil fuel to new kinds of clean energy. Uh, We do work on saving and preserving public lands. Uh, We do work on dirty fuels that uh, addresses fracking. Uh, We do uh, work on environmental justice that that where the the issues intersect, such as issues such as uh, redlining. Uh, we do lots of issues in Wait, regard. Wait, what is redlining? I'm sure I should know this. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure no. I should know this. <laughs> no, so redlining it was an issue in the the 1960s in which black people and where they segregated the lines in terms of where black people could not live, and so mm. thus the the racial politics still fall fall today of where people have drawn the lines when it comes to the community grid of where people of color can live. Um, and, and so we address that, that history uh, and try to provide access through creating policy. Well, yeah, we met on a panel that um, my friend, Monty Rupert Gordon, put on, the, who yeah. is the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. And Monty is such a, just like such a thoughtful person, just somebody I'm really glad to know. Um, and then that whole panel was really cool. And I was really struck um, by you. And I, and I wanted to talk to you more about this work. Um, I mean, number one, I thought, I thought we got along and that was really fun. Always fun to find a new pal. Um, But I also, you know, I was, I was struck because again, when we talk about like perceptions, the kinds of people that I think we imagine do, do jobs working in, environmental justice. Like, I think it's like some like crunchy granola, um, like lawyer from Berkeley, California, who like, you know, 
was like raised with generational wealth and then like went to enough um like organic grocery stores that it like <laughs> you know became important to them but but the folks who are feeling this impact you know so much of this of course like anything marginalized communities feel the effects of economic i mean of environmental injustice yes more and so it just it was very i i felt like just just overjoyed to even hear that there is somebody like you doing this work like that 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 seems um that that should be true thank you so i've been involved in diversity equity inclusion work since i was in high school uh, i did this program called anytown and it basically facilitates conversations around bias bigotry and prejudice among other high school students in your city and so out of college uh, I worked at an LGBT youth center. I oversaw community youth outreach. And then out of college, I worked at an LGBT community center and I worked with young people in terms of overseeing outreach. And then I went to go work at my alma mater and I oversaw diversity training and I did diversity recruitment. But it was at that moment where I started considering what are other kinds of diversity that I can do? that I wanted to show, like so often, like when we look at queer and trans folks, like we see people like in the movement, like doing only LGBT queer organizing work. And that is important too. Like we need people like in that space. And it was the, the first move when I moved into higher education, that was the first time where I said, I can expand my work because I felt like I was being pigeonholed as a, a black trans woman that I was going to be doing outreach work forever. And so when I wanted to make the move out of higher education, I wanted to do something else in the realm of diversity. And of course, when it came, you know, like I said, to the work that Trump was doing, uh, it, it was obvious that that was the work that I wanted to do. Because so often we don't think of queer folks expanding into other kinds of work. And that's what I wanted to show. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, I know most of, you know, most of our listeners that are, that just listen to this podcast are yeah, people with jobs, people with jobs that are often outside the, you know, LGBTQ uh, sort of official activism space. Um, and so I'm sure there are a lot of people who can relate to the idea of, you know, spreading um, a message of diversity and inclusion, like wh wherever uh, you happen to find yourself um, or wherever you pursue uh, career. I want to, I want to ask you about when you were working at, in LGBTQ outreach, where was that center? Where, where was Yeah. That? So I worked at the center on Halstead, which is situated within the heart of Boys Town in Chicago. Absolutely. Halstead and Waveland. I mean, I lived in that community. I mean, at least a decade. I, I lived there. When I, did you work there? So I worked there from 2011 to 2014. Oh, wow. Okay. So we would have like maybe not overlapped um, because I moved to Los Angeles in 2012. Um, but I, prior to that, and, and you should feel free to jump in and correct me because I'm going to vaguely, you know, speak about this from like its memory, you know, yeah. of a, of a, as a former Chicagoan. So, you know, Boys Town is this neighborhood that's right next to Wrigley Field <laughs> and Wrigleyville. Which is where like a lot of sports drinking happens uh, in Wrigleyville, <laughs> and a lot of like Irish flags are flown. And then directly next to that is this, um, you know, traditionally like white cis dude gay neighborhood from from way like maybe early times. Um, and obviously, there have always been all sorts of different folks, but the people who got money and then bought condos there, um, it was a very different community of people than that needed services. By the time it was like in the mid 2000s and I was living in Chicago, there was a huge, you know, because I grew up there, then I moved away and I came back. And when I was living there, when I came back, there was a huge thing going on in that neighborhood. And it sounds like you might've worked there during part of this where um, you know, the folks who were like property owners, um, were these like double income, no kids dudes in, from like 30 to 
60 who, you know, are like the, you know, flexed out gay guy that, that one would imagine from the television show Queer as Folk. And then like the folks who actually needed services there were a lot of Black trans folks, specifically a lot of, also a lot of Black trans women who were being not welcomed and actually actively pushed out um, by this community who like got some status, got some money and then like forgot where they came from. I mean, or maybe they never came from those places, you know? Um, But I just, this was a huge issue that was ongoing um, during the time that I lived there. And then the center on on Halstead built a huge, massive, beautiful new space above a Whole Foods. And in some ways, it looked like maybe for a minute at the beginning that that was sort of going to continue to be unwelcoming to our family members who needed the most support. I know that folks then worked very actively to change that. Um, And I'm wondering if you could speak to, you know, the stuff that I'm talking about and if that does reflect your experience and Absolutely. I think there there are a myriad of things to pull from that. I mean, first of all, we can talk about the gentrification of that neighborhood. That yeah, neighbor please. that neighborhood originally was a lot of Latino and Hispanic folks who lived who lived there before they were were pushed out, you know, and they, you know, were subjected to to redlining you know, in terms of not being given access to services, you know, to purchase homes, you know, based on, you know, their ethnicity or their race. And and you see that that same kind of redlining practice take itself, take root in that neighborhood. Like, you know, you have this giant center, you know, built that was, you know, heralded, you know, as the voice of the community. And this is a huge moment. And I had just graduated college when this was just starting to happen. And the queer and trans youth from the South side would start to hang out in the neighborhoods. And I was very visible in the neighborhood. I was a queen at the time. I performed in all of the bars. I mean, that is that was where I worked. That is where I played. And so I would see the young people just voguing outside the window. I mean, they would come in droves to hang out because it was a safe space. I mean, I grew up seeing something like Babylon on on Queer's Folk growing up. That was the only representation, you know, that I had known as a gay conclave. And so that's what Boys Town represented for so many people. And there started being some violence that broke out in the neighborhood. And they were blaming that violence specifically on the young people. And it was at that point where there was a community meeting and there was probably about 600 people at this meeting. It was in a large gymnasium and the the people who lived in Lakeview, Boys Town, were sitting on one side and the young people were sitting on the other side. I was sitting on the side of the community because I was a queen and I felt like queens are community activists. And so I, I was, you know, sh- showed up in solidarity and I couldn't believe the vitriol that I heard from the people who were testifying at that community meeting, community meeting of saying, we don't want the young people here. These young people don't belong. These young people are trouble. And they were saying, it's that center. It's that center that brings those young people here for services. Because not only is the center on Halstead located in that neighborhood, so is the Broadway Youth Center. And yeah. so the youth are able to kind of uh, circumference around and, you know, they get healthcare through the Broadway Youth Center, which is uh, under Howard Brown's leadership. And then they come, they would come to Center on Halstead for their programming. And so basically they could have a full day of services from 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. at night. And then, you know, they would find, you know, refuge on the streets, you know, or going to, to sleep at the lake. And it was at that moment, you know, I was still, you know, a queen, you know, after college, I said, oh, I can do this. I can perform. But after that meeting, I was like, I don't, I don't want to be around. These are the people who are hugging me in bars. I want to take pictures with me. And I want nothing to do with these people at all. And so we just had to push back against it. There was, 
you know, a group of us who organize a group called Queer is Community, and we held community town halls. And I went to go work at the center in Halstead. I went to go work with those young people. And, and I felt like I put myself as a wedge between the community and those young people. And it was such a gift to work with those young people who were so resilient. And many of them were involved in the sex trade. You know, many of them, you know, were, were, were homeless and, you know, would walk the streets at night and just seeing them just show up. It, it felt so resilient. You know, the, the way in which they still possess the joy in, in their lives. And the, the voguing was the joy in their lives. You know, the voguing was what gave them power. And right, when we look at history, we see that is where queer and trans folks found joy in the nightlife and the power to create their own worlds. And so it was just disgusting to see. And, and not just that, that same kind of, you know, situation in terms of not creating access and space for young people, I saw it happen all over the country. It was happening in New York City uh, with Ally Fournay. It was happening in Los Angeles with, at the LA Gay and Lesbian Center. It was happening in St. Louis. And it was just disgusting to me just to see white gay men say, we don't want these kinds of youth in our, community, in our communities, especially when we look at the history. When we look at the history, when we know the high rates of homelessness, suicide, and so many other individuals' experiences when it comes to coming out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I also think about, because some of the services that, that the center provides, and again, please like correct me if, I, if anything here is not, is not um, accurate, but the types of services that the center provides, which is everything from like mental health care to referrals for something like um, and you're also talking about the Broadway Youth Center. This is also where folks might be getting treatment for um, HIV, you know, which, again, if you're doing sex work, um, that is a service that you need access to, you know, and especially in these communities, I mean, because of the age range of a lot of the folks that live there, you know, these are folks who survived the AIDS crisis and then, and then flipped around to say to, you know, our own family, um, essentially like I made it through, you know, good luck, uh, and like slam the door, you know, and I think you are about exactly something like right. that. You are exactly right. And I think, I think that's the profit. That's the problem within the nonprofit world today. Uh, the nonprofit industrial complex, especially when it comes to LGBTQ leadership of these organizations, there needs to come a point when you step aside because you no longer realize the urgency of the work and what these young people need. I remember we're, we were battling the executive director of the center because they didn't want the young people to sleep in the building. We were being told to wake, this is a three-year journey that I had to experience. So that was extremely traumatic at times. We're being told, to wake homeless youth up that they cannot sleep in the building. And my coworkers and myself are saying, these are the homeless. They haven't slept. And, you know, we also had a myriad of issues because Whole Foods, uh, the, the center in Halstead is in essence a tenant yeah. of, of Whole Foods. And yeah. they paid something like 25 years of their rent up front. Uh, so that the center on Halstead could open. And so the Whole Foods, in essence, becomes a player in, in, in the dynamics of the space. And so Whole Foods, they would donate, like they would donate food to us every morning, you know, for young people uh, to, to eat. And during the day, once every day, we were going to go down and get food for the young people. But occasionally young people go in there and they would steal things. And then the, the center would tell us that we need to ban those young people from the center. And we're like, these are homeless young people. You know, like this is what they do to survive. Like this is like survival, like of the fittest. And if you're sitting in the lobby and the, there's just like gold sitting next to you and your stomach is like rumbling, like you're, you're going to like choose 
survival. And it was a, a very problematic process uh, that Kate Sosen, who is now with the 19th, documented so wonderfully for the, the Winded City Times and investigated the center and held them to the fire in terms of the practice of banning young people from the center. It was a very problematic process. Uh, and it, it was extremely hard for me to, to, see, to see the trauma the young people carried and to not feel that the leadership on down that that they were addressing like those problems head on. Yeah, I had to cover my face and like <laughs> during part of uh, what you were talking about because I I so remember all of this. You know, um, it was a huge because at that time also Whole Foods was like a newer um, luxury brand. You know, essentially, and that that was paired with. And I also think that when the um, I think because I was a comic working in Chicago at the time, I seem to remember, like I was invited to like lots of launch events when the, when the center first opened and there was like this big sort of, there's like a rooftop area, yes. right? It's, I'm remembering it's this very right. very beautiful. Yeah. There's like a rooftop area that <laughs> Gorgeous view of downtown. Down, gorgeous view of downtown. Then there was also like, you know, like drinks being served and they're like, there's a Whole Foods in the basement. <laughs> Just is like very funny because I think that because of systemic racism, because we have not moved as far on trans rights and trans inclusion as we have on gay rights. I mean, the thing about the gay rights movement is that nothing has ever moved that fast in terms of like civil rights movements, <laughs> because <laughs> because like white men were involved with it. It moved real fat. Like, yes, there was a lot of waiting, but then also look at the civil rights movement like that. Like <laughs> it's, that is a different speed, you know, um, for black folks to get justice in the U S that has been a very different speed. And so it, it feels like, um, there's just a, for me, that speaks to something that we're still, it, you know, we're still, that was the first time I really saw it. This, this, this like dawning of, um, wow, now we have money and power. We have Whole Foods and a rooftop deck. Yes. And the difference between that and what a lot of other folks are experiencing, that there is such a mismatch. Um, and we are still dealing with that. But for me, that's the that was like the, because we were just about to get marriage equality. We were just about to, you know, Ellen had been on television long enough that like, people weren't throwing up anymore when they saw her, you know? Yeah, and so yeah. it's like this part of things had moved um, and a lot hadn't. Uh, yeah, I completely agree with what you're saying. Like, I feel one of the things that when it came to trans rights, I feel that the urgency wasn't there. Even in the midst of solidarity, like there were trans people, you know, who were standing on the front lines you know, of marriage equality, you know, yes. in terms of, you know, the the allyship piece. Yes. But I feel there hasn't been a full outcry. Like when you look at things, when you look at, you know, HIV and AIDS, like when you when you think of the tactics of groups like ACT UP, scaling, you know, the the FDA, making AIDS quilts in Washington, you know, to mark the, the memory of those lives lost. There isn't that that outcry, that same kind of outcry when it comes to trans rights, when it comes to trans justice, when it comes to economic justice, which part of this, I think, is an economic piece, when it comes right. to, to trans people. And I feel sometimes we, we forget our history. I think as we've pro progressed, into gay ink, I think we lose. <laughs> yeah. I think we lose. I think we lose a little bit. I think we lose a little bit of that, right? I think it takes all of us, like in the fight. I think it takes people who are institutionalized. It takes people who are in the chant. But I think there should be more of that crossing more often to to leave us in in our history. You know, we and because. It's about moving with urgency. 
And I often remind people of that. The urgency is lives are at stake. There are homeless trans youth who are sleeping on the street every night who don't have access to resources. And it, and it was why the things happening at the center with the leadership, that that was so problematic. Like, you don't have to, you're in an office at the other end of the building. I see a young person who's sitting in front of me and has a myriad of, of issues. And I would hope as we move forward that that would be more of a, a priority. But I am glad that, you know, it, it, it is also interesting of, of how the dawn of, of modern trans equality, that it took beauty, that I think that it took the mm. beauty of, of trans people that that was the barrier that broke open the conversation. You know, like when you see, you know, Janet Mock and Laverne Cox, you know, Carmen wow. Carrera arriving on the scene. I mean, you can't ignore the, their beauty. You can't ignore the beauty of, of trans folks. And I think that broke open the conversation that we're here, that you... and. And I think that's one of the powers of visibility and the problems of visibility in, in itself, too. But I think that helped push open the door. That is really interesting and, and makes a lot of sense to me. Well, then that also I think that the tough thing about that, as you're saying, that is that that's not scalable, you know, because those women have access to a lot of help in looking like that, as does anybody who works in Hollywood, you know, like like. Yo, if I'm on TV, I do not do my own makeup. You know, of course, <laughs> of course, a team of, course. of people, of course. And um, you know, that is that is true. That um, I don't know whether you want to say passing or whether you want to just say like, yeah, just straight up beauty. You know, that is so it's so not scalable for an entire community because it it just requires so much access. Yeah, I can I completely. Agree, but I think that there are, there are legends, you know, that we pull from our history. Mm-hmm. Someone like Leslie Feinberg, you know, I mean, there are there are people there, but I don't think people were magnifying them to to the forefront. You know, mm-hmm. you can't say that queer and trans folks haven't been here because we've always been here. It's about who is telling the story, you know, and I think that we've been removed from the narrative for so long. But I think I'm saying that I I felt like beauty helped open the door, you know, to, to the conversation, to the existence. That's just so smart. And, and I will, I will also add that, I mean, clearly this is a, this is many of the contestants on RuPaul's Drag Race are not trans. Most of them are not. Um, but there are, there is, it is, it does seem to be a different, I think racially it's a, it's a more diverse group of like there are more, there are more black men that are that are beautiful queens. Um, that I think that is also something that has really changed in terms of visibility. You know that that there is there, for a for a for an American. You know, if we have to change our minds via consumption, unfortunately, which I think sort of sometimes we do. You know, there is there are there is this way in which beauty has really changed things for the queer community uh, writ large, both for trans folks getting more representation in that area. And then also just something like, um, yeah, the rise of like black Queens and seeing, seeing, you know, those folks like really on mainstream television constantly over the yeah, last even RuPaul. Of years. I mean, even RuPaul, yeah. I mean, yeah. cover girl, I mean, you know, the supermodel of the world, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? This larger than life, you know, black man who's, I mean, she's gorgeous. RuPaul yeah. is gorgeous. And for me, I talk about this in my book. I've always been me. <laughs> All, little uh, shameless promo there. Uh, Ru- Do it. Paul, yes. RuPaul, and I know you have a fabulous memoir. I have it too. Um, <laughs> and I know that, you know, for me, RuPaul was one of the first queer icons that I had ever saw on television. She was on the Ricky Lake show. I was a kid. This is like 1993. Yeah. And she's got these long legs and she has this soaring cape. Blonde, blonde wig, and she comes out twirling, and 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 we see even you know in that same area, that same era, you know when you look at Sally Jesse Raphael, and you work uh, at Phil Don, and you look at Phil Donahue, 
the the way that in which trans people were, you know, uh, even Jerry Springer, the way in which trans folks were paraded on. And it was kind of like, can you believe it? Is this a man or is this, you know, a, a woman? But I like that the converse. And I think that that is that was part of the trailblazing, too. Right. It looks like caricature. Right. Like in, in that point where it was and it is caricature. But I think that those trans women were, were being bold, you know, by, by sharing their truth and, and we build on their legacy. Uh, but I think, you know, in the late 2000s, we started being taken serious, you know, as well. And that's what I mean when I say beauty, you know, opening the door to the conversation. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! I'm just curious because I think I've, I don't think I can identify this. And I think about this a lot. Um, do you see, do you see like trans men or trans masculine folks who are having as much of an opportunity to um, break through and get some compassion, some understanding and some interest? Because I feel that I really I really don't. I really feel like there's a, I mean, nothing should change for, for trans women and trans femmes, but yeah, there yeah, does yeah. seem to be this, um, uh, just a void, you know, in terms of our understanding. And, and for me, that really, that has huge safety implications. You know, it has huge implications in terms of who's incarcerated and where, you know, how, it, it just is, it's, it's huge stuff, and I just don't see it. I don't see it out there. Are you saying in terms of the in terms of like the visibility do representation, I visibility, you know, like, um, but i I'm always open to the idea that maybe I've just missed it, you know, like maybe yeah. it is happening. but yeah, I, don't, I mean, I yeah, I think it. I think that the the scale has started to tilt like when it comes to trans men in terms of visibility in Hollywood. I mean, when it comes to, you know, folks, you know, like Leo Shang, you know, who is, you know, in the L word, you know, someone like... Yeah, we've had Leo on this show. Yeah, Leo's fantastic. You know, someone like Teek Milan. You know, I think that, you know, the scales are starting to shift, but I do think that the media in particular did put such a focus on trans women, you know, when it came to covering narratives, covering trans people. But yeah, I do think that the scale should be should be balanced. I feel like there is lots of representation like when it comes to gender not com- gender not conforming folks and queer people, but I would I would like to see more trans masculine and in, in particular trans masculine people of color um yeah. represented in media. Yeah. Well, same page. <laughs> you know, something else that I'm re- remembering we were talking about in our first conversation was uh, or when we were on that panel together, was spirituality and and religion. But I cannot remember the specifics of what we got into. So I'm just so curious, like, is that something that's active for you? Do you have a do you have a spiritual life? That yeah, I remember you said you grew up Catholic, right? Is that is that I right? I did. It, yeah, yep. what, I remember you saying that. Yeah, yeah. and I, I did identify so much with our conversation. So I, I grew up in a very religious family. I grew up in a, a Pentecostal environment. I grew up in the age where things were accused of being demonic, you know, mm-hmm. where, where to find the, the hidden meaning in everything. I'm not allowed to attend Halloween parties. <laughs> like, I need to watch who I'm hanging around because they have bad spirits kind of thing. But I feel as time has evolved, and especially as I've 
come into my queerness, into my womanhood. I feel that I am, that, that my spirituality is me, is me. I once, I was thinking about this recently because I used to say to people like, I'm a spiritual person. And now I wouldn't say that. I'd say, I, I am, you know, I feel, I grew up in this, in this context of being afraid that I wasn't going to hell. You know, in church, they would always give these weekly, huge altar calls that heaven and hell stand before us. And if you, want, if you don't want to leave here today and not know where your soul would go, like if you would die, like this kind of like fear mongering. And I think, mm-hmm. I think that takes away like the ability to live this life. Like for me, that is like my spirituality. Spirituality for me is to be aligned. Spirituality for me is to be of good and sound mental health. That for me is spirit. It's being complete. It's the way that I show up uh, in the world. It's the way that I care for my friends, how I care for others. That's a way of being. And I, and I wouldn't just describe that as I once would have said that, like, I am spiritual. But now I just <laughs> say that this this is me. This is who I am. I am shaped of my experiences and those who I love. That, that is, that is who I am. And I think for someone, for someone, oh, thank you. I think for someone who is aligned, that is soul work. That, that should be our, our daily existence in, in, in our practice. And that is what brings me to my work. Like my work is spiritual. Like at the end, I want people to look at my life, be like legacy, legacy, legacy. Like I did the dang thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, as you're speaking about that, I'm thinking about this, that that description of how you grew up. And um, I mean, this is something I think about in my own life. I was raised now. Maybe there were some people who were taking it less seriously than I was. Like I was taking it pretty seriously. <laughs> so that's that's also possible. But I was also raised with like a very uh checklist set of <laughs> like heaven checklist, hell checklist. And by the way, like one thing that was on, you know, I mean it wasn't just queerness. It was like one thing that was that's on the hell checklist for Catholics is divorce. You know, so I was I went to Catholic school. I was a little kid. And there were kids in my class whose parents were divorced and they went to like a special program after school that I think was supposed to be supportive, but everybody knew who was in it. And in our religion class, our teacher said that, you know, divorce was wrong. So there was definitely a real stigma. And anyway, I I just say stuff like that because um, I don't know, there's a lot that I do find myself grateful for in the kind of like charisma of that community that I grew up in. But there's also, I think about people who didn't then like become a theology major and read all the stuff that they were actually supposed to believe. I think about people who were not gay as hell the whole time. (laughs) And like, then they just have to stay there and be fighting that fight their whole lives. I'm wondering if you think about that. Because when you're describing this church, that's what I think of. I think of those yes. people who are still there, you know? Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. I'm like, oh my God, you guys are crazy. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I still, I still follow like my old church, my old pastors. Mm-hmm. Like I see what they're posting. Sometimes, you know, everybody's on, you know, Zoom church like these days or like Facebook Live church. So I right. just like pop in and I'm like, oh my God, you're mm. still preaching that same sermon. 10 years later, Jesus Christ, (laughs) you know, but I, yeah, I think about the young people and yeah, I think that you and I have a certain charisma like uh, uh, about us. I think that's a, a, an innate gift that everyone does not possess. Everyone doesn't possess the spirit of optimism. And yeah, I mean, you see people, you know, like Layla Alcorn, you know, that young trans person who felt like they needed to jump in front of a semi-truck because that their parents weren't accepting of them. And those are the, also the young people that I think of, of like, I, I think of the little me's who were like forced to like sit there and listen to that vitriol 
And it's just as like so awful. And, and I think that's why it is important for us to have conversations about spirituality as queer and trans folks specifically, because I think that that is a stereotype that we as queer and trans folks, that we don't have any kind of spirituality and that that yeah. isn't possible. So that's why I always talk about that kind of spiritual, you know, component in my work and who I am, you know, and, and I think that also that love is another kind of spiritual connection, like your partner, you know, or, or if you have multiple partners like in your life, like that sort of thing, like that is another kind of spiritual connection, you know, that is so shamed. And for me, it's been such a fulfilling part of my life. And it like breaks my heart. Like I, sometimes I, I look at my partner, I'm like, uh, I'm like, oh my God, like one day through the eons of time, we will part, you know what I'm saying? And that gives, you know, me joy. And I pray that young people, you know, have that same fulfilling feeling that they know that they can be loved and that's possible. Absolutely. I, I, I think that's very well said. And I mean, I also, it's funny because I feel like in some ways we've also circled back to where we started this conversation because the, those types of environments, you know, contribute massively to unhoused youth. And so yes, I can then agree. that's how folks end up needing services, yes. you know, and, and, um, I mean, certainly listeners on this show know this, but it, to me, it really is like, I want to look at the whole thing and say like, this is what's happening to our community. You know, yes. like, here's where the shame starts and then it separates separates us from our families of origin. And then we end up needing services. And then the people that could provide those services used to be there themselves, but no longer want to participate in that. And so it's just like this big um, circle. And if we can see the whole thing, then, then maybe we can, um, you know, fill in the missing pieces. I completely agree with you. It's one big cycle of oppression. <laughs> and if we can be a, a break in that cog, I always say that we find our power by supporting like those in our community and those to our closest sphere of influence. Who can we affect like in our, our family? Is it young people in our community? Is there, I just, last Friday, I went and I, I was in a Zoom and I was invited and I talked to six to eighth graders here at a Chicago public school. And I, it was like 150 young people. And I, I, my heart was like so touched just to be in that space and to talk what about- What were you talking about? So I talked about identity and celebrating the various pieces that make up wow. who we are. And I talked about being a proud Black trans woman. I talked about the power of humanities the power of art, the power of storytelling. It was such a powerful conversation. And after several of the teachers emailed me and told me that some of the students who spoke have never, ever spoken up before. <gasps> oh my God, gasp. I mean, that that's just so cool. I, I think that that would have, I can't imagine if I had had, if I had been able to have you in my Zoom. <laughs> although, although I, <laughs> although there was not the internet during my childhood. <laughs> Same, same. I, we didn't talk about queer and, and trans folks. You should also go talk to that class. I'll connect you. You, you okay, would be great. awesome. Sounds um, great. <laughs> but yeah, the same. Like we did not talk about trans folk. We did not have trans folks coming, you know, to visit, you know, our classroom. It was not <laughs> no. Some, yeah, no, that, that wasn't happening. That would have never happened. That was something, right, that I was exposed to much later. Something that I was like actually like sneaking you know, when I was, you know, probably about seventh grade, I was like huddling in the corner looking, you know, at like out or the advocate or like something like that. <laughs> you sure. know, getting my like, my little like sneak peek into the world of gay culture. Absolutely. Well, I want to um, I want to send you back into your day pretty soon. But before I before I let you go, um, I always have folks shout out a queero. So that's like a, you know, person, place or thing that made you feel that you could be who you are today. You want to shout out a queero? Person, place, or thing that made me who I am today. Staying mm -hmm. on the lines of young people. I like I grew up in a very tumultuous environment and I was in and out of foster care. And uh on one of the times, you know, that I had, you know, my family, you know, my family of origin, you know, was obviously had issues like with my sexual orientation and my gender identity. And 
the one of the judges said that I needed to go to therapy. And one of the things uh, that they specifically ruled uh, in, in, in their orders that I go attend a PFLAG meeting and specifically a youth PFLAG meeting. Because in Omaha, uh, they have this where queer youth meet on Saturdays and it's at the, the United Methodist Church. And I'll never forget just because back then, right, the malls were all the rage, right? Like, I don't, I don't know. Were you? Oh, I'm, a, I'm a mall kid, yeah. Okay, right, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, every Saturday, you, like, go to the mall, you know, go to, like, get the pretzel, you know, go to... Oh, for sure, a pretzel. <laughs> for sure, like, a small fry from McDonald's. Yes. Like, I just don't need, like, just, like, weird... But then, like, then so you can get another small fry, like, an hour later so that you can stay in the McDonald's exactly. for a very long you period of like time with hours. all your friends. Exactly. Just constantly getting yes. the cheapest thing on the menu. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. In and out of like the Gazooks or the Hot Topic, mm-hmm. you know, going to the Gap, you know, it was like very that. But I remember I just, I purchased these heels, probably from like Wet Seal or Charlotte Bruce or something. And I like put them in my backpack. And I didn't, I don't even know how I knew it was a safe space. So I was wearing like this little Gap t-shirt. I was wearing these like Gap jeans and they were these little, like wooden, like slip-in kind of like heels, you know, very like Britney Spearsy, like of like the moment, like very, th- very that. And I went to this, this meeting and I just took them out, slipped it on and sat in, in that meeting. And so I want to say the, the Quero is, is that youth group when I was a young person that I, and it was like in the basement of a church and it was Saturday and it was like very on, you know, it was like very private. You know what I mean? It was like four o'clock, like on a Saturday afternoon, like in like a basement, mm. you know, and there's like 30 youth like around me, you know, in various states of like queerness and colored hair, you know, and all of, all of, all of this stuff. But that space to me was everything where I could just exist and I would go to those meetings and then I would leave and I would go back to like my normal life. But it was such a lifeline. Uh, and that youth group is called Proud Horizons. And I got to go back a couple years ago and I got to sit with some of those young people. And I was like, yes, wow. the work continues. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I also just want to say, and I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure if you feel this way, but like shout out to that judge too, because that is some like, I have no idea what that person's familiarity with the community is. But yeah, like, right. That is, wow. Talk about affecting somebody's life, you know, from the bench where you can, you can also ruin lives from the bench. So, yeah, ex- exactly. So like, yeah, exactly. Really you're cool you're that, so right. I was such an embattled kid and my family was just like, they've got all the, these things going on with their sexual orientation and their gender, you know, and the judge was just like, Go to a PFLAG meeting. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that was, yeah, I'm so glad that I had that experience. Yeah. Well, Precious, it's uh, it's been a true delight. And thank you so much uh, for being so honest and open and um, and for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'd love to send you a copy of my book. Yeah, I want one, please. Please.